Hello and welcome to another episode of the Sega Guys Retro Pod. We're back again, finishing off the second part of our Saturn vs. Dreamcast innovation extravaganza, if you want to call it that. Um, so in the previous episode, our debut episode, Dan gave us his five examples of Saturn games, which he believed epitomised Sega at their creative best. And we're now going to flip it round and Dan's going to put me on the spot and I'm going to present my five Dreamcast games and my examples as to why I believe the Dreamcast was Sega at their innovative and creative best or then go over to you guys on Twitter and wherever you want to get in touch with us to let us know what you think, do you agree with Dan do you agree with myself, all friendly banter, you know nice nice positive discussion in the community because there's a lot of hate on Twitter when it comes to gaming and that's what the retro community is really good at it's all positive, it's all inclusive and we all just love our, our retro gaming and our favourite companies, so Dan I'll hand it over to you mate. Yeah and it's uh, it's funny that you say about the uh, the positivity around this because uh, although we're both coming from different sides of the fence as this, in terms of the Saturn versus the Dreamcast I don't think there'll be a bad word from either of us over either system, we both love both of these systems uh, I love the Dreamcast a bit I mentioned on the previous episode how I'd sold a few uh, games that I, I, I do kind of regret selling them towards getting my Dreamcast back in uh, 1999 uh, but I wouldn't trade that experience for the, for the world, I mean like you James, I went and got uh, an imported Dreamcast, uh, I got mine uh, in uh, April 1999 uh, a good few months before it came out over in, that's uh, pretty in, similar to me it's similar to you. I think mm-hmm. the price to something of something affordable it was around a thousand pounds at launch. I think it dropped to about two hundred for the console when I got it. Yeah, well, I, I was I was four eight five with a copy of Virtua Fighter three and a step down converter. Um, and I basically I was kind of similar to your Saturn story. Um, and at, at that time I was kind of working part time as a student, so I was kind of putting money aside. But my my mum basically kind of matched what I was saving until I had enough to, to go and get the get the Dreamcast from the, the local independent store that, that you know dealt with imports. Um, but I just remember back in the day, shamefully, on my crappy X eighty six Cyrix Windows ninety five PC that I had for college, um, I had made the most embarrassing wallpaper where it was just a white screen with the Orange Dreamcast logo, the console, and uh, every day I changed it. Days, <laughs> days until Dreamcast. <laughs> so bad. Oh, Jesus. I was, that, I was so, so excited to, to get my hands on one. So it was, yeah, my birthday was in May, um, and it was April that I kind of got it. So it was, you know, what, five, five months or so after launch. Um, and it was, again, like yourself with the, with the Saturn, it was the first one you'd saved up for and bought. It's that kind of special feeling that, you know, that this is the first one that, that you've, you've, you've put your, your own hard work into it. Um, and I think having it as, as an import and back in the day, whenever, you know, the, the scene was so much an import that you, you did feel I've got something no one else has got. You know, it was you, you, that that kind of exclusiveness, that exciting. You had something absolutely brand new. Everybody else is playing PS1, you know, going on about Final Fantasy VIII coming out, and you're sitting there going, oh, you know, you, you still get this, you know, this amazing machine. Oh, that was 99, so that came out the same day as, as the Dreamcast in the US. But it's that kind of example that people were still playing these very basic 
kind of polygon games with no textures and then you were all of a sudden going to these unbelievable lifelike humanoid characters with you know worlds that were so detailed and rich in texture and colour that you just it, it was such a, a generational leap um, at the time and I don't think maybe with a generation that we've got coming with the, the move to you know Ryzen and Navi that we might see you know something of that kind of that scale but then games now look so good that you're kind of struggling to think you're not getting that kind of shock and awe no, you know, to, I think to go from Metal Gear Solid to Sonic Adventure, you know, Jesus Christ, look at the difference. Yeah. You know, so. so I think we're in a phase of diminishing returns now as far as the next, con- I mean, the next consoles could be a, a huge leap compared to what the leap from the Xbox One and PS4 was to the previous generation before that. But I still think, you know, games look phenomenal now and uh, there's only so much more phenomenal than they could, that they can look. And I don't think we'll have anything that's quite like the wow factor. Mm-hmm. And, you saying just now about the feeling of having something that no one else had, that was a feeling that I wouldn't change for the world. And when I say I wouldn't, I wouldn't swap, swap that experience uh, to get those, to get the Dragon Force or Castlevania, Symphony of Night back for the Saturn, uh, I wouldn't give up that. The, the Dreamcast I've actually still got sitting in front of me now. It sits on my next to my de- desktop. Um, it's still working, uh, plugged up to the HD, HD display. I mean, when I first played it, I played it on a monitor and it blew my mind. How stunning it looks. Uh, Sega Rally 2 and Sonic Adventure were just uh, games that they just felt light years ahead of the Saturn PS1 and N64 games that we were playing at the time. The, the technological leap was absolutely phenomenal. I'll give you a kind of funny story about Sega Rally 2 because, of course, back in the day, teenager, got a Dreamcast, no one else has got one, so you've been playing Sega Rally 2 for months. HMV, I believe the month before launch, they held a nationwide Sega Rally 2 tournament and they had the PAL Dreamcasts all set up with those amazing, you know, pods that they were set up in the demo kiosks and uh, now the name of the TV channel, it was a cable TV channel, a gamer TV or something comes to mind, I can't remember and I've asked my best mate who was with me at the time and still ribs me about this to this day (laughs) basically walked in and I remember, I just remember seeing this, it was like the guy, the camera guy, just one camera guy with a kind of one in his shoulder, and there's a host, and he was, you know, what's your name, and blah, 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 and have you played this before, and there's me, cocky, so-and-so, ha, mate, I've had this for months, I've got a Japanese Dreamcast, <laughs> I'm going to boss this, and of course my mate puts pressure, he's like, ah, he's really good at this, by the way, right, <laughs> I've searched YouTube to try and find this in case it ever appears, because I'm mortified if it ever does, but anyway, so I've goes up goes up to the guy with the clipboard registers, I get called up to the kiosk, desert stage, picks my car, Salika, here we go. Three, two, one, go. All you proceeded to hear was Oh whoa Boof <laughs> as the lack of a sixty hertz mode seen me hit every single corner. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. I was thinking when you said that. The uh, I was wondering when you started saying um, whether it was the uh, whether the frequency would uh, would make any difference because it wasn't one of the uh, the games that offered that sort of sixty hertz mode, was it? Yeah, my timing was off, and yeah. suffice to say, the the guy that was hosting the event looked rather smug as I posted possibly <laughs> the worst time of the day. <laughs> oh dear, so oh dear. I shuffled out of HMV on a Gill Street in Glasgow with my tail between my legs and went home and played it and 
shaving a couple of seconds off my my lap times seemed to <laughs> seemed to make it all go away. That <laughs> was so bad. If it ever appears on YouTube in some archive, I'll be mortified, honestly. But that that's my my uh, my Sega Rally Two Hall of Shame story. <laughs> and as I say, my mate never lets me live it down. He still kind of. Oh, I remember that time you made an arse of yourself in HMV. Shut it. Ah, oh. but anyway, so, one to so my five took, games. Yes, I mean, I was going to say it shows what uh, what a difference the 60 hertz mode made, which again Sega renovating with that. But I was going to say we, it, it's unquestionable how innovative the Dreamcast was as a piece of hardware. Mm-hmm. I think what we now explore is how innovative it was in terms of in terms of software, which brings us onto the the debate that we were having. Mm-hmm. So yeah, James, if we count down on your five games so uh, which was sitting at number five okay so um on your listener written piece i think you went from five to one i've went from one to five so i've kind of scrolled to the bottom here in my list obviously i'll, I'll work my way back up um and while in the, the last episode you had said that you know having treasures guardian heroes in there was a little bit of a loophole when i read your draft it got me thinking because i went for an absolute humdinger of a I kind of loophole here because my number five is Soul Calibur, and yes, it's a Namco game. So why the hell have you got it in a list about Sega? Because I want to use this to basically echo what you'd said there. I think Soul Calibur as a piece of software. I don't think there's much else other than my number one choice that had such a shock and awe factor about it in terms of it was an arcade port that wasn't only you know, the arcade game carried over. It was better in every single way possible. The audio was better, the graphics were sharper, the textures were better. Everything was just completely done from the ground up. And it was because of the decisions that were made with the hardware. The Dreamcast itself made that possible. Um, you know, Soul Calibur in the arcade ran on PlayStation equivalent hardware, much like Tekken and Tekken 2 and Tekken 3 had done before that. So... You know, from Namco, who had never brought, I mean, Soul Blade or Soul Edge, whatever version you played on the PlayStation, again, Namco had never brought anything. It was a bit of a shock to see this game come into the Dreamcast, I remember. I was like, holy hell, that's a follow-up to Soul Edge. What's, what's yeah. that doing and coming to Sega? That, that's, that's a PlayStation game. Um, and I think the fact that the Dreamcast was so ahead of its time, was so powerful at that point in time, that Namco sat up and went, we better actually look at doing something on this. So I think that's that's why I've kind of used a, a very, very, I mean, to, to quote, you know, Murtaugh from, from Lethal Weapon, you know, that's pretty thin. And I know it is thin, and there'll be people that'll be going, Jesus, come on. Um, but I just wanted to use that kind of fist slot um, just to get Soul Calibur in there, because it's just it's one of my favourite games on Dreamcast. But I don't think you can underestimate the impact that the hardware had on making that port possible. If Dreamcast wasn't about at that point and, and wasn't what it was, we would never have seen this rendition. So Calibur may well have, you know, come to PS2 later on and been full of jaggies, um, or just ported to PS1 at some point, and we would have only got that kind of very basic version. So I think, you know, it's one of those games, the first time I remember seeing it, um, you can't, you just cannot discount the impact of it. It was literally, there was no jaggies. Everything was so. I mean, I just remember looking forward at my screen and going, "What? You know, you were that. I remember my eyes were that close to. I'm looking for imperfections. I'm like, I cannot believe this game looks this good. And I always remember whenever I unlocked Lizard Man, 
and it's always daft of all the characters, but Lizardman, you could see his individual scales. Yeah. I was like, how do, this was just unbelievable that Rock's, you know, headset, you unlocked him as well. And the fur, the level of detail, the fur on his, you know, his, his, his headdress that he wears, you know, the, the sparks that fly whenever, you know, Mitsurugi fights Killick and you, you, you parry and ching, the, the, the sparks that fly. You know, everything about it, the game just, it's absolutely stunning and I just don't think it would have been possible at all at that moment in time had the Dreamcast not existed. So that's why it's in at number five. Yeah, it, just to echo what you said, it was, it's, I think it's the first time we'd ever seen an arcade game better in a home port. We'd never seen that before, uh, or at least not a modern home arcade game. And it was on System 23, I think, the hardware, which mm. is ran second free. So even though it was, it was like souped up PS1 hardware, um, which was the same as, uh, I believe Soul Edge, Soul Blade, uh, ran on the same hardware. And of course, when that got ported to the PS1, I love Soul Blade. Uh, but my chief uh, frustration of it is that it's it's not 60 frames mm. per second. Yeah. Uh, it's a frames per second flying game. Um, and you've got to imagine that if Soul Calibur made its way to the to the PS1, uh, the same uh, cuts would have had to be made. But the stunning thing about it was here it was looking. The characters looked better on the Dreamcast. It was you play it through a monitor. It was absolutely stunning on Dreamcast. I remember pausing the game. Um, just to, uh, similar to you, James, uh, looking at the details and characters, <laughs> looking at, <laughs> looking at, say, the, the, the textures on the clothes, the, the, the definition on, on like their faces and their, and their, and their arms and chests and stuff. I remember looking into the, into the distance, you know, I think coming from the Saturn at the time. <laughs> I was I was so used to seeing these um, parallax backgrounds that were you know they looked 3D but we we knew that they weren't whereas this everything seeing so much detail in the background you know you've got all this detail in the background you've got these characters that look like a million bucks and it's running this move and it's better than the arcade I mean that really felt like you it was it was another world at the time it was absolutely stunning i mean soul calibur is one of my favorite fighting games of all time i think when i top did my top 30 fighters it was number three uh my favorite 3d fighting game of all time without question i mean you mentioned the the stages you know i think the two stages that instantly come to mind when you talk about the the stages of soul calibur is uh, is huang's stage yeah, the kind of the the one that's like kind of a raised platform, kind of with the the four pillars, and you see the desert outside in the distance. Yeah. Um, and Siegfried's Venice level. Oh yeah. <laughs> Absolutely gorgeous looking game. It is. Uh, even like I think Songmina's stage again. The, yes. The sand pouring down in the background. It just looks absolutely phenomenal i mean the fact is that this is a 20 year old game now 21 year old game uh and you can stick it on on original hardware today and i think it looks pretty much as good as anything else out there it's absolutely beautiful (laughs) that's the thing mate i've I've got the the xbox version um and i still prefer to play it on dreamcast (laughs) there is something off about the xbox version i think um, a lot it, of the content's missing as well. It's mission, you know, the, the mission battle mode's completely missing as well. Yeah, it's it's missing a lot of content, and everything's unlocked from the start, which mm. kind of kills a bit of the fun. A lot, a lot of the fun in Soul Calibur was doing the mission mode, playing arcade, and you know, oh, I've unlocked Lizard Man, or oh, I've unlocked um, Siegfried. Um, so losing that was a was a was a big disappointment, but. I think there's something off in how it plays on the Xbox. Um, and it's not just the controller because I tried various control methods. Mm. It's still best played 
on the Dreamcast. And between the two consoles, you'd be hard-pressed to tell the difference, even though it's meant to be HD on the Xbox. Mm. I just laugh at that. I mean, why unlock everything from the start? You're missing out on one of the cheesiest voice samples ever. <laughs> A new yeah. soul arrives! <laughs> you know? Yeah, <laughs> get so excited whenever you hear that. And so that the, the menu music when you're going through the gallery and you're uh, unlocking all the all the um, different things, you're turning the it's the question marks over, and every time you get something exciting, it's like do 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 do. What have I got now? <laughs> you're talking about the, the kind of music there as well, but the, the intro. You know, oh, again, a lot of intros that we were greeted to on you know Saturn and PlayStation were like full motion video. And you could only kind of, you sat there and went, oh, imagine the game looks like that. Yeah. But, but Soul Calibur used all in-engine in characters to create its intro. You know, so it, those, it, those characters that you were seeing dancing about, that's what you were playing the game with. It was, and you had the edit mode, didn't you? Yes. You, you could unlock a way to, <laughs> to change the characters in the intro. So oh. I used to think it was hilarious to have Astaroth replace Sophitia. Yes. So he's trying, <laughs> you got his character, his giant, hulking, evil-looking character model trying to look all pretty and rushing her. <laughs> and I, 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 I mean, that alone gave me hours of joy. Oh, nice, nice to see I'm not the only one that done that. <laughs> I'm not the only strange one. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I had it boot up that way. I, I had it That's saved. right, you can save it and have it boot up like that. Yep. <laughs> ah, superb. Memories, mate. Brilliant. I'm going to do that. I need to unlock that now and do that in the Dreamcast version. I need to do that. I keep meaning to do it myself because I've, I've lost my Soul Calibur save years ago, but I keep I keep dipping into it. <laughs> thinking, right, eventually, I'm going to unlock it and I'm going to get back to my, my, my pretty Astaroth intro. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> oh. Great stuff, mate. That okay, is. so... Sorry, mate, were you going to say? No, I'm happy to move on. Okay, so do you want to give us your uh, number four? Yes, number four is Res. So this, um, again, much late nights, um, it's kind of quite hard to pigeonhole it in terms of, you know, the, the genre it fits into. I mean, you could call it a shooter, um, and I suppose it is, if you be completely blunt about it, but... Um, it's a, a, I prefer to call it a, a shooting music synthesizer <laughs> because <laughs> it's one of these games that, again, you put it on and whenever you start a level, it's very, very basic. Yep. You know, you've got maybe one or two enemies coming onto the screen quite slowly. You control, the, if you've never played it, um, this wireframe humanoid figure flying through space or rooms or whatever. It's just an environment. Let's just call it an environment. And you start with a beat line, just do, do, do. And then as you shoot something, you might get like a, like a, oh, and then it, it kind of borrows, these, these sound effects are sensational, by the way, I have to say. Just the, the, the impressions of twos have done a sound effects and music, I think. You know, Sega missed a trick back in the day. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of strange that it borrows a lot of the shooting mechanics from Panzer Dragoon. Yep. You know, you've got the, the kind of the, the target, you press shoot once, one bullet, you know, that's it, but you can hold in the shoot button, move it around the screen, lock on to, you know, several, you know, characters uh, or enemies, and then 
as, as you take them out, you start to ramp these combos up. You go from single shots to lock-ons. And as, as the level goes on, the beat line has never changed. That just stays. But with each enemy and each kind of timestamp that you get further into the level, eventually you've got like a, a as I said, the written piece. It's like a Tiesto gig. Yeah. <laughs> you know, by the time you get to the the actual, you know, end of stage boss and you're fighting that, the, the thing's going off like the prodigy. It's just, it's, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's absolute chaos. Um, and it's like absolutely nothing. It's a scene that we've used a lot in these two episodes. It's like something, it you know, <laughs> something you've never played before. But th- that's what a lot of these things are. Sega brought these experiences that gaming has kind of left behind. And a lot of that is down to Sega's fault. The way that Sega have restructured themselves and the way that they've focused on, you know, they've now moved into kind of like mobile gaming and free to play and, you know, they've got the Yakuza series, which is acclaimed as it is, just doesn't float my boat personally, but it's just, that, that's what Sega was on both the Saturn and the Dreamcast. It was just experiences that you could pick up, put on and just completely immerse yourself in, turn it off, get about your day and then come back the next day or a couple of hours later and just jump back into it again and I think if you've never played Res um, you better have deep pockets if you want to play <laughs> it on a Dreamcast um, I just hope my Japanese copy that I sold is out there being looked after because it's worth an absolute bloody fortune now. Yeah. I mean I, out of uh, all the games on both of our lists uh, Res is the only one that I've not played on the on original hardware and now I do have it on uh, Xbox 360 I'm not sure if it's backwards compatible with Xbox One I think it might but, be uh, I'm sure I might have seen it yeah through I've, the store I've got a feeling it is but I've not no. seen it in my library I have to I'll have to double check but I just again to echo what you say it's absolutely stunning we, you talking about the, the sound effects that kick off and then the oh, once you move into the next stage yeah, brings back so many memories when I finally got my hands on this I mean I should have got this on the original hardware and they were, I'd never got around to it but I was so glad to play it on Xbox 360 um, it's it's funny it's, again it's, it's like you said it, it defies convention it's something that's unlike anything else out there Um Aside from, you know, the various HD remakes. And didn't it get a VR version as well? I think so. It rings a bell. I think there might be a PSVR version. But, yeah, it's you start, and it's exactly as you said. You start off as just like this little stick man. Going through, <laughs> you know, it, and it looks like, it kind of looks like um, like Tron on a budget, doesn't it? Because yes. all these <laughs> wireframes and this stick man. And I think if someone picked that up, they'd think, what the hell is this? But by the time you get to the boss... Um, you've just in this absolute kaleidoscope of of colour and sound, and I think it's absolutely genius that that you shoot people and those every time it hits makes a tune. It's it and it's all disparate notes every time that you hit something. Uh, it's quite unlike anything else out there. Um, and I, I, I do wish I played it on the Dreamcast back in the day, but I love the little touches in it. I love I love how the little um, the target goes up in number, telling you how many things mm. you've locked onto. It's just I don't know why. I just like I, I just like to know how many things I've locked onto. But then I, you'd always struggle to make sure that you locked onto everything all at once because that was the best way to get you know the the, the music to play when you hit. It. <laughs> um, it was it played beautifully, didn't it? It was just so 
nice and fluid to pick up. Uh, and you could just dive straight in, which is, to be, as you say, it's the beauty in, in, in Sega's games. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't like the, you know, they, they make their, most of their games these days are, you know, they've got the Total War series on PC and they've got the Yakuza series. But uh, it's these arcade games and these experiences, and that's what Res is, is an experience that, you know, we're really missing out on. Um, and that's what they excelled at in this era. No. A worthwhile addition to, to any list, and as I said, if you want to get it now, the PAL version, I think CEX, I think is it eighty quid. Is it eighty? Wow. Eighty quid at CEX. If you go on eBay, there's a, I'm sure I've seen a sealed copy on there two weeks ago. It was a hundred and thirty. Oh wow! <laughs> to get it sealed, um, there's no chance that my wife is sanctioning that purchase. So no. <laughs> I will stick to I'll stick to the memories. <laughs> Yeah, I think the Xbox the Xbox version is very good. I've not played it on PS2, and I don't think I'd want to, um, given how some of the Dreamcast or PS2 ports were. Um, but I know that's a little bit more reasonable in terms of price. But the the, the Xbox version is a, a good way to go, mm. I think, for anyone that hasn't played it. Absolutely. Okay. Brilliant stuff. Okay, so moving on to uh, to your number three, then. Number three is Sonic Adventure. So um, I think you'd touched on you know Sonic Extreme uh, in the last episode, and we all know you know the we've seen the the E3 demo um, yep. that had occurred you know 1996 E3 demo. Um, we were finally getting you know Sonic in 3D, um, and for whatever reason you know development hell you know internal politics at Sega you know never surely not. <laughs> um, it just never got anywhere, and it was eventually kind of canned. Um, we did get Knights, obviously, which kind of took that a new IP and took that 3D world and, and made it a whole new experience. But um, not having a proper kind of Sonic title is the one kind of only blotch, I think, on the, the Saturn's kind of software, you know, portfolio. Um, we did get Sonic Jam, which, you know, the, the compilation of all the, the Genesis and Mega Drive for the, the UK folk. Um, you know, all those kind of games bundled in with this rather gorgeous 3D world, a very, very condensed version of Green Hill Zone, um, with a museum and various kind of mini games. Um, the museum allowed you to kind of listen to music from the Sonic games, look at all the kind of the full motion videos from like Sonic CD and, you know, you could choose which soundtrack to listen to for those, those videos. You have the Japanese one or the, the, the UK or, or the American one. So, it was a very rich package, but you know there was never an actual a proper Sonic experience. Um, and obviously, the Dreamcast delivered Sonic Adventure, albeit a little bit late. It was delayed in Japan. It was meant to be a launch game. Um, it came out just in time for Christmas in Japan. But again, a, a game that the first time I seen it was CA Games, um, which was the kind of import um, specialist, independent kind of games shop that. Most of my, my teenage and early 20s years were, were spent traipsing around with my best mate, but he, he had the Dreamcast. I remember you walked in the door and you went to the right-hand side near the Dreamcast up in that top right-hand corner. I just remember walking in and, and just seeing this barrage of, of colour, and it was just on a, a loop of a demo with um, Sonic in the kind of valley level, and he's, he picks up the, the kind of the wee egg statue and he drops it on the, the square and then the, the tornado kind of comes out the ground and opens up and whoosh, away you go and that's you into the level. I just remember standing watching this going, what in the name of Christ, man, this is... In, in my head, I could never have envisaged what Sonic would have looked like in 3D, 
but this this just looked far in excess of anything that I could have imagined it would be. And the the camera isn't perfect if you play it today. The the kind of lack of the the second analog stick on the the Dreamcast pad kind of hits pretty hard in that aspect. Um, if you've came from using you know DualShock on PS1 and controlling cameras while moving, um, but even at that, it was just another example of so smooth, so colourful, so detailed. Um, really bad voice acting, but that was just <laughs> par for the course for for games in the nineties that had voice acting. Yeah, you know, oh look, Sonic. Oh, jeez, oh, mm. don't sound too yeah, surprised, but- Tails. You know, it's. Um, it's, there's a reason why I play. I prefer to play it in Japanese. Yes, <laughs> I, I, that's the thing as well. Because also, I had it was a Japanese version I had, and for some reason, I, it's when he's daft. I don't. I don't speak Japanese. I could very vaguely read kanji because of playing Japanese games. I could get arcade mode and versus mode and options. <laughs> that's the three I could understand. Um, but I remember another um, Tails crashes. He's playing and Sonic sitting at the side of the pool. Yeah. And he goes, Shogunai wa. And I don't know what as he says, but I just remember that's what it sounds like. <laughs> and he just sounds absolutely scunnered. Um, <laughs> but no, I just, certain characters that it introduced, I can see what it tried to do in terms of taking the Sonic experience, bringing it into 3D, and the, the, the levels with Sonic and Tails are brilliant. The other characters, um, uh, you know, Amy Big the Cat and E102 aren't, you know, outstandingly brilliant to play, but what was great was the way that all their, their story arcs all intertwined. You know, everything kind of came across and, and met at a certain point, and that part was, I liked that, the thought that went into that, that they've tried to bring this whole, you know, barrage of experiences from different characters' point of views together. They've tried to implement a kind of an RPG-ish element into it. Um, and then you've obviously got the kind of the the chaos as well, or the chows, if you want to pronounce them, um, for your VMU as well during the whole kind of Tamagotchi craze. Um, didn't ever sit on the bus to work and, and play with my my chow, I have to say. Um, but no, just uh, I think the fact that the, the Saturn didn't have an actual proper Sonic game, and I think that was something that Sega knew they had to rectify. You know, for the for the Dreamcast, and they tried to bring it for launch in Japan, didn't quite make the window. Um, not that it would have mattered because they didn't have enough units to sell anyway. They had more demand than they had units because yeah. of the obviously the, the infamous graphics chip shortage. So yeah. maybe having Sonic at launch would have made it even worse. Yeah, because more people wanting machines that weren't there. Um, but I think it's it's one of those games that. Um, it's flawed, but still loved to this day. Um, I don't know why, but I still prefer it to Sonic Adventure 2. I don't think Sonic Adventure 2 captured the kind of spirit of what that game... And maybe that's just down to the fact that the first time I seen it was because it was an, a, an import specialist store. You know, it wasn't out over here yet. You were getting to see something new and fresh. So I don't know if at that point, if maybe that is clouding the judgement a wee bit if it's kind of adding a bit of rose-tinted specs to things but um, I just think it was a, a really bold move to try and bring so many character arcs into it as well as trying to take the kind of classic Sonic gameplay and move it into a 3D world Yeah, uh, it's bold in so many ways um, I think you look at the Sonic Jam world and um, 
I would have loved for that to have been a full game on on, on the Saturn. Uh, it showed what would have been possible. Obviously, there was the issue with uh, I think the Sonic Extreme team wanted to use the Knights into Dream engine, and Yuji Naka said no, they can't have it. And then obviously they made, <laughs> which you know, baffling, baffling decision. Uh, but yeah, as you say, internal politi- politics at Sega at the time. Were they all uh, about, honestly? <laughs> oh no, it's just madness. I mean, they're just shooting themselves in the face constantly. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I mean. But Sonic Team showed what the Saturn could do and what a game or a Sonic game on the Saturn could like. And do you know what? I think the Sonic Jam section is phenomenal looking um, for the hardware, but it obviously wasn't what Sonic Team envisioned. And you look at Sonic uh, Adventure, particularly the Sonic levels, um, compare them to say Mario 64 or Croc or something like that, which are you know large levels, but they're quite they're not as huge as Sonic Adventure. Sonic Adventure's Sonic stages are absolutely sprawling mm-hmm. and he flies through them uh, unlike anything else you'd seen in a, in a platform game at that point. Um, I think, yes, the game divides opinion. Um, but it's like you say, they delivered a lot of content. The interwoven storylines, uh, six playable characters. Um, I think they all play great except for I think Amy doesn't play that well and I think Big the Cat's uh, adventure is is a, a, a crime against uh, against humanity but <laughs> <laughs> for the rest of it I think if you take Sonic Tails and Knuckles uh, I know some people aren't a fan of the Treasure Hunting Knuckles stages but even just Sonic stages and they're beautiful they're absolutely stunning to behold um, just because of the sheer scope of them um, and there's so many nips and tucks and shortcuts and everything that you could just uh, that you know if you were uh, if you really wanted to put the time into it you could really find uh, ways to, to shave off those those level level clear times and uh, earn all those medallions. So and then as you say you had the the, the Chow world which is a whole other mini game experience. Um, I mean this was the game that I bought a Dreamcast for. <laughs> Funny enough. Um, but I didn't actually buy the game when I got my Dreamcast. I think uh, CEX didn't have a copy, so I had to borrow one off my friend who'd bought, <laughs> who'd bought the uh, bought the Dreamcast at the same time. And um, I remember he came around my house and said, how are you getting on with Sonic Adventure? And uh, I, I showed him my save file, and I had 99 lives and unlocked most things. He's like, do you, do you play anything else? <laughs> 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 no, this is, this is all I need for now. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, it's, uh, I think... It's unfair, I think, the way that some people look at this. And if you're like, like me, James, you played the Japanese version. Um, there's a website called The Cutting Room Floor, um, and that's got... Um, it shows a lot of the differences between the J- Japanese and the Western version. There's quite a few changes that they made. Um, and then there's obviously the DX versions, and I, f- I think the DX versions of Sonic Adventure are, are pretty poor. But I think if people actually played the, or- the original Japanese version of Sonic Adventure, it's a marvellous game to behold. Uh, it's one of my favourite Sonic games, and it's either that or Generations for my favourite 3D title. And like you, I prefer it to Adventure 2. I like Adventure 2 a lot, but um, and similarly, it might be it might be rose-tinted glasses, it might be nostalgia bias. But having this, I mean, when I got my Japanese Dreamcast and when I was playing this and showing people this game, it was uh, just a genuine wow moment. Uh, it was really so far ahead of everything else out there at the time. Yeah, I mean, we all know the the infamous scene that you would use to show it off whenever pals came up. You know, yeah. he went straight to the whale. Yep. <laughs> you know, straight to the whale. Like, I, I remember, again, I had like, friends up whenever I, I'd got that, and I just remember it was like, I'm playing away, and they were already kind of, oh, you're, 
you know, you're bouncing about off springs and collecting rings on an extra life up in that ledge. If you run fast enough, you can yeah. run up to the left-hand side on the mountain and through yeah. the wee tunnel and out. Um, and then, you know, the three springs, doing, 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 onto the kind of the wooden, you know, panels that you run round. And then the camera spins round and it's just... <laughs> you're, you're sitting there all kind of cocky because you've played it umpteen times you look at them and you go <laughs> just yeah. watch the jaws hit the floor if you see that you yeah know. I mean when, when my friend got he, my friend got his uh, Dreamcast a couple of weeks before I got mine uh, and he obviously had Sonic Adventure and uh, we had to hijack his parents living room telly to play it <laughs> <laughs> and uh, his parents were watching his brother was there and his, one of his brother's mates and we, I think we watched it uh, just in awe, uh, and we got to the part where you're you're kind of on the home run, home straight, and you dart across that narrow sandy uh, beach, uh, and the camera uh, pans up a little bit behind Sonic, and you got the the glare from the sun oh. coming down, and the dolphins cross over, dive over his head, and uh, my fr- my friend's brother's mate just screamed, like, "This is pure eye candy!" It just the cheesy line, cheese is all hell, but I think you just said exactly what we were thinking. It was just wow. Oh, that I know exactly what you mean. That that the, that kind of lens flare you get, the kind of the light shining through just in the, uh, the dolphins. Then ah, oh, beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. <laughs> you know, get, yeah. You I'm going to play it after this is recorded. I'm telling yeah. you. So. <laughs> Same. Same. Even oh. if it's just that level. I, I mean, just play that level. That's that. That's what you need. Yeah. Actual Sonic Adventure fix. Just play that first level. That's you. That's it. And the thing is, you know, the the camera rightly gets criticised. But whoever was working on the code and the camera at that point got it absolutely spot. Oh, maybe you talked about Guardian Heroes in the last episode. You know, and um, you know, kind of games like that. The two D kind of tech demos. I'm still convinced that bit in Sonic was put in there as a a kind of show off tech demo. You know, yeah. kind of sl- let's just spin the camera and have a I'll be all chasing Sonic and destroying all the scenery because <laughs> yeah. why not? <laughs> you know, yeah, oh. full set pieces and yeah, it's it's just it's, it's, those set pieces are the wow factor. But there's so many other elements of this game with so many pieces, and yeah, it doesn't all come together. It is flawed, but the bits that work, I think, just work absolutely swimmingly. It works, it works so well. So yeah, brilliant shout. <laughs> Love this game to bits, as you can tell. <laughs> absolutely, cool. Okay then, mate. Shall we move on to your number two? Number two, I have is Jet Set Radio. I really wanted to. Uh, I really wanted to shout that out. <laughs> hey, so that was your thing. That was See, I, I would have if the wee one wasn't sleeping. <laughs> Trust me, if we recorded this at two o'clock in the afternoon, I don't care. I'd have been giving it loudy, mate. Um, and I think that that kind of sums up Jet Set Radio. Loud. Um, I think um, if any game was to encapsulate the Dreamcast's attitude uh, I think Jet Set Radio might have a damn good shout for it because yeah. again cell shading, who'd heard of cell shading before Jet Set Radio you know I don't recall there ever being that kind of graphical effect, I'd certainly never seen it before this game um, it just looked, again that phrase that we've used so many times, it, it looked like you know nothing we've seen before third person kind of semi open world um, exploration doesn't fit into a, a specific genre much like a lot of these games that we've, we've covered over both of these episodes um, a graffiti simulator 
for yeah. lack of a better word. <laughs> um, you know, I, I doubt there's many people who haven't played this. Um, and my timeline, um, I follow the composer, whose name has shamelessly just left me. Um, I follow him on Twitter, and literally... Um, all he does is just retweet people shouting for Jet Set Radio to be rebooted. You know, um, especially Jet Set Radio Future, which on, on Xbox is kind of bittersweet for me because, in my opinion, that should have been a Dreamcast game, but like yeah. I said about that, the better. Um, but just everything about Jet Set Radio, the, the, the gameplay, the way it looks, the kind of sprawling worlds, the... The crazy nature of it, you know, you're, you're the, the GG gang recruiting different members, trying to kind of oust rival gangs from your turf, going to their turf and trying to kind of oust them from their own turf, covering up their tags, being chased by Captain Onimusha, who goes from having a, a hand cannon. He looks like a kind of Japanese Columbo with a giant <laughs> magnum. Um, you know, you've got cops that come in and chase you around. You've got the SWAT team that comes in. There's tear gas. There's helicopters. There's, I mean, all because you're spraying a bit of graffiti. Um, <laughs> absolute madness. I'm convinced whoever came up with this concept was on something at the time yeah. because it's just absolute madness, but it's so much fun. Um, again, like Sonic Adventure, there's times where the camera you could really do, especially whenever you're being chased by the aforementioned captain and his SWAT team and his helicopters, um, what you could do with a second stick just to kind of, as you're escaping and moving with one, just to kind of keep an eye and, and straighten the camera up. Um, and at times I think the, the controls feel a wee bit kind of tight. Um, but the most clever thing about the controls is, and again, like Knights, they try to connect the character to the controller. So you don't just walk up and, you know, hold a button and then that's you tagged it. You know, the, if it's a small bit of graffiti, you hold in the spray button and you get, you know, yourself the commands on screen down, you know, a, a kind of semicircle round and up to the left. And you've actually got to, as the bits of graffiti get bigger, you need to A, have more, you know, spray cans, which you need yeah. to collect at various points in the level. Um, or, um, you've got to complete these really, really complex moves. So you'll have down, semicircle to the left, semicircle to the right, up, semicircle, down. You know, and if if you don't pull it off, then you, you don't really kind of have to start again, as you know, but you kind of lose your combo. So it takes longer to finish it, which puts you at risk of being caught. And it's just, it's a mental, mental game mechanic that they've actually tried to put combos in, you know, into graffiti. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it it really is, um, and uh, I think it's it's something it has over Future. Um, I do love Future as well. I love both of these games, but uh, it's so true. I got to agree with what you say on on bringing the the actual movement into spray and the graffiti. It's tricky. I think the window for actually getting the the the, the stick movement in was exceptionally tight at times and yeah it was uh especially when you've got sometimes even the army bearing down on you while you're just trying to peg a wall (laughs) (laughs) captain anishima in a tank or something um tear gas or spikes at you um but you know it got incredibly frantic but yeah i just absolutely love that about it that you 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 simulate the arm movement uh that you'd need to uh to, to, to spray that graffiti art um which yeah, is something that future lost. Um, but yeah, totally agree. It's 
I think Fear Effect is the only game I can think of before Jet Set Radio that had cell shading, mm. um, and that was that was used to a completely different degree. I mean, this was cell shading used uh, to to drill down on that style that Jet Set Radio was going to deliver. And this game is another one that still, you put it on today um, and you wouldn't think that you're playing this game on a 20-year-old on a system. Uh, it looks as beautiful and fluid and colourful today as, 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 as it did 20 years ago. Yes. Yeah, I see, just even the soundtrack. Yeah. Everything about it, the vocals, you know, the, the crazy, is it Professor K? The, yep, the DJ exactly. at the start, you know, him, him announcing things and, and just, you know, setting the scene. Um, everything about it is just attitude personified. Yeah, I, the soundtrack is one that I I have downloaded on my phone and that goes on frequently. <laughs> Would you stop <laughs> playing with that radar of yours? <laughs> I'm trying to get to sleep. Samples that you use are uh, uh, so... I thought this was the coolest game in the world when I got, I got it on import. Um, when it was uh, released in Japan, and uh, yeah, it, I was trying to show it to my friends, and they were just like, "Well, what is this?" Because I think Tony Hawk's was the Tony Hawk's games were around at the time. So like, it's like, well, not not exactly. I mean, you do tricks because there is that element to it as well when you're trying to rack your score up. But it's yeah, it's it's not quite a platform game. It's not quite an ex- extreme sports game. You know, it's it's mainly around spraying graffiti, graffiti everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and getting chased by ever increasingly aggressive law enforcement. Yeah, insanely aggressive law enforcement. <laughs> there are other gangs were great as well. You had the, the the monster guys and the love shockers. That's right. Uh, and uh, yeah, the, the the amount of personality they had. Um, I mean, I, I love the, the everything about this game. The, the, even down to like the little dance moves, the little shimmies they all do. I just thought was so cool. It's it's. D- designed by just uh, just it seemed like it's designed by club nuts on this one. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a game that I'm actually shocked got a power release. Yeah, because um, I mean these 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 games also had this you know back in the, the Japanese version, um, which was all in English, which was absolutely fantastic at the time. Um, but it just I was shocked that it did get a power release because yeah. it's it's so Japanese. It is. I think they did try to westernise some of it, didn't they? Mm. Um, I think I, I had the original, the Japanese release originally, um, but uh, things like they added the, the 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 decimal point to the timer counter, and they added quite a few um, tracks from uh, from Western Western Eyes, I think, from the top of, uh, from memory anyway. So I think they did try to westernise it a bit, but yeah, it's it's very very Japanese. But thankfully, I think this is one that uh, a lot of people have played and do recognise as just such a very very special game mm-hmm. so yeah wonderful game okay so shall we uh shall we move on to your onto your number one my number one and everybody that's probably listened is when he's going to put Shenmue as number one <laughs> of course I'm putting Shenmue as number one um this I want to kind of set the scene with the first time I've seen this um, and it was in CA Games, as I mentioned, uh, that kind of import store. Um, I happened to be in, I don't remember the exact date and when it was, but it's whenever whenever Charlie got it in stock. Um, and I just happened to be in the store with my mate at the time, and he unpacked his delivery, and he put it on. Um, and I just remember the two of us standing there watching it, and he was, you know, he started a game. 
and I could not believe what I was looking at. That opening scene, the snowy atmosphere, the black car, Ryu comes in, you know, finds Ine-san lying there, you know, she tells him, or oh, Hazuki, yeah, Sensei's in the dojo, you know, you better go in. He goes in there, and there's Landy confronting his father for the, the Phoenix Manor. And Landy scans the scene, the, the pupils and the eyes move, the hair's flowing, he fights Ryu's father, the, the movements, it was like, literally, like, it was, obviously we know, Project Berkeley, um, Virtua Fighter RPG would go on to become Shenmue, um, and the whole idea was that Yusuzuki wanted to have this living, breathing, open world where the elements of Virtua Fighter would somehow be encompassed across to it. That came across in the the free format, you know, roaming combat. You know, Ryu's got a move set list that's probably on par with Akira. Um, you know, just absolutely crazy move set that he's got. Um, but the the world for me is the absolute star of this show. Um, for as good as the visuals are, the fact that you can walk down the street, any shop you see, you can go in there. If you want to buy something off the shelf, you can. If it's a can of juice, a bag of crisps, chocolate bar, you open it up, you win a golden ticket to win a, a prize you can use towards, I think it's one of the, the Outrun soundtrack or you know, something along those lines. Just the, the immersiveness of it is just unparalleled. You can talk to anybody who comes up to you. Some people might not have much to say. Others might have ridiculous things to say that make absolutely no sense. Um, you know, Tom, the hot dog guy, just <laughs> makes no sense half the time that he, he talks to you. Um, there's the, the infamous, you know, you go up to the the wee toy machines, Virtua Fighter ones or toy ones, and you put your money in and, you know, you, you turn the wee... And if you've never had... We've all, we're old enough, we've had those things in real life, by the way. We've all played those. Yeah. You, know, you put your pound coin in and it... Ch- 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 you turn the wee handle, <laughs> wee ball comes out, you open it up, oh, I've got a toy. Um, and the, the kind of... The comedy gold of, you know, your father's been murdered, <laughs> but I think I'll go and buy some Virtua Fighter toys. Yeah. But then once I've bought a toy... I'll then question myself on whether I should buy another one. <laughs> so it's, hmm, maybe I should buy another. No, <laughs> not today. <laughs> you know, the the voice actor, as we've touched on, it wasn't the greatest. It's probably a game that, that was more fluent whenever the, the Japanese version was, was in full swing. Um, but just the whole nature of the game, that it was based on this real-time... You know, twenty four seven clock. Like if later on you get a job at the forklift, you know, you know the the warehouse with the forklifts, and you've got your bus to get to work, but you can't go and get the bus until a certain time, and you can read the bus timetable, mate. You yeah. can read the bus timetable and check it next to your own your own watch. I'll be back in back in half an hour. What will I do? I'll go and play something in the arcade until the bus comes. Go into the arcade. You've got Hang On, Space Harrier. Um, my favourite game in that is actually the, the, the QTE one. There's two, the, isn't there? Is the, the panels the, that come up. Uh, yeah. Um, the, wee, the wee guy mocks you. Final try! <laughs> Think you can do it! <laughs> Shut up. Uh, just, there's, I could literally sit and talk about Shenmue for hours. There's just so many, you know, wee nuances and details and, if, you know, just 
if you dig, you'll find so, so much to it. Um, and I think, you know, today's open world games owe so, so much to that game. And a lot of people say it's not aged well. Um, and to a degree, I would agree there's aspects of it that, you know, the controls aren't the greatest. Again, it tried to change things up a wee bit in terms of the controls in the Dreamcast feel a little bit different to other kind of 3D games. It tries to, you know, be a bit more kind of liberal. It combines the D-pad and the, the stick for movement, you know, when looking around. So it tried to, to do that. But it's just the visual aspect alone that Yu Suzuki wanted to bring arcade quality, Virtua Fighter 3, Model 3 arcade board level visuals to an open world game that was just so rich in depth and was so alive. It was that, That's the word that I used in the article that I think sums up. The, the world felt so alive. And if you go back and play it now, and if you've never played it, and you basically, you only compare it to Assassin's Creed Odyssey or Origins or, you know, it's never going to stand up to games like that. You know, that have current gen singing, dancing, gigantic world side missions, you know, all these kind of things. But Shenmue at its core was just, and again, I prefer the first game to the sequel. And again, I don't know if that's Rose Tinted Glasses again because of how I first experienced it, but I said in the written piece that if Jet Set Radio was Dreamcast's attitude, then Shenmue is its soul. Um, and that, that pretty much sums it up for me. I could wax lyrical for hours. Um, the soundtrack, um, again, I've, I've said so many times that the soundtrack for Shenmue, the main anthem, is tinged with tragedy, sadness, hope, and for me, it kind of—it's almost like it's the anthem of the console. Oh yeah. You know, it's—it's it's, it's haunting. It's moving. Um, I just—oh, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it, mate. Honestly, I just—it's a, a special, special game. And I think for what it tried to achieve, obviously they tried to do it on the Saturn first. We've all seen the kind of tech demos, which, by the way, is bloody impressive for a Saturn game. <laughs> They Again, the Saturn had no right to be even attempting Shenmue. Um, big decision to, to move it on to, to Dreamcast, but um, what a game. And I'm going to shut up and let you talk now. Oh, no, but you've, uh, I think you've hit the nail on the head absolutely there. I mean, Sonic Adventure was the best-selling game on the system, but if there's one game that's synonymous with the Dreamcast, it's Shenmue. And um, I think everything it goes out to do, it actually achieves. Um, there was no template for this sort of thing at the time. There was no Grand Theft Auto. There was no... I mean, I think we had some free-roaming games, but they were on the PC, and I think they were very much screen-by-screen. Screen. Um, I think you had very early Elder Scrolls games, um, but nothing quite like this, and the environment felt absolutely alive. And I was, like you, James, when I saw that opening sequence, uh, I must have watched it heaven knows how many times. Um, the The intricate detail on Landy's robe and how it moves oh. just uh it's got creases that <laughs> you know <laughs> I mean I'd been blown away already several times by the Dreamcast uh by this point but that was just like wow just wow how how is this even possible oh remember my one of the first things I read about Shenmue was when it was first revealed and I think it was in CMVG and they had a preview of it. And back then it was just a few like area shops of what the worlds looked like. There wasn't an awful lot about story. Uh, but I remember the one line that stands out on it there in, in that piece was, we all thought that one day we'd be exploring 
uh, interactive 3D worlds, but not this soon. And that was it. It just felt so futuristic, so far ahead of its time. Um, yes, it does specialize in the mundane, but I think that's what makes the game so unique now. It's not like Assassin's Creed where you've got uh, a plethora of waypoints and objectives and all sorts of stuff cluttering the stream. It's not like Grand Theft Auto where you can just go around and do whatever the hell you want. Uh, it's not It's not instantly uh, invigorating. It's something that once you're in, you're in for the long haul. And it's. I feel it's such a much more special uh, and rewarding game as a result. Because um, I played the HD versions on Xbox uh, just last year, actually. Um, and I hadn't played Shenmue for over 10 years before I'd played the HD remasters. Uh, and I was stunned how much I still loved the game. I thought, all these people that say it as an age, well, what are you on about? <laughs> this game does exactly what it goes out to do. Yes, it's not as exciting as uh, other open-world games at the moment, but that's what makes it more special. That's what makes it much more personal. So you're either one of these guys that think okay well, this game's not for me I think it's a bit slow a bit boring and it controls a little bit clunky or you become a, some sort of super fan which I think both you and I love this game to bits and you've yep. got the fans that even go out to your Costco in, in Japan and do pilgrimages to <laughs> slow in. Yeah. Um, and that's I think that's once you once you let the game it, once you let the game in uh, it's it stays with you forever and it's such a special experience um, I probably prefer the sequel personally um, I think in terms of story beats and uh, in terms of what it achieves and the, sc- the scope of it, I feel like that's the superior game, but they're very different. I think Shenmue 1 is a much more personal game um, and I think it's, I don't think it's down to any sort of achievement between the two. I think it's down to the fact that they're different spirit experiences but told through, very, uh, told through the same story. Um, and Shenmue 1 is, yeah, it deserves to be top of this list because it was so far ahead of any of everything else out there, and it set the standard and it set the way for for many games. Uh, it, it basically invented a, uh, a genre, um, it popularised it. Uh, unfortunately, it's uh, it's it was uh, its existence is uh, a gift and a curse for Sega, uh, as we all know. It didn't yeah. didn't perform as uh, as they'd hoped it would, uh, and the, the the cost of development meant that it um, unfortunately. Uh, died out uh, along with the Dreamcast and uh, wasn't really revived until the uh, the Kickstarter for Shenmue 3. But yeah, I could, yeah, like you, mate, I could talk about this all day. Uh, I mean, it's, there's so many subplots you can go off into as well. It's like, how come Sega Europe released Shenmue 2, but Sega of America didn't? You know, yeah. and then ended up that the, the Xbox got it. Peter Moore apparently still gets hate to this day from, from Shenmue <laughs> fans as the, the man who sold Shenmue to, to Xbox. Yeah. You know, it's, there's just so many branching stories and, you know, you know, fandom, you know, kind of topics that you can go off on. Um, it's as an experience is, is what you summed it up as. Um, and I think that, that, that pretty much sums up Sega. Yeah. They don't, they don't just deliver games, they deliver experiences. Oh, they do. I think you could say that about, uh, every game that we've picked. Is, is something that you experience uh, and something that in most cases is completely unique to Sega and you know that you're playing this game on a Sega console even if you were um, holding a, a pad for a converter you can just tell by the look and the feel and the sound of that game that it that it's Sega and that, that is that spirit that we're talking about and yeah Shenmue perfectly encapsulates that so I'll 
100% love that game to bits and yeah it's uh, Sega through and through and that, is, that is my my five that's your five so are there any uh, honourable mentions any that uh, you want to discuss that didn't quite make the, the top five yeah I've got four um and the kind of caveat as well that we both agreed to is, I meant to say this in the first episode, is that we've both picked games that, you know, we've all, you know, owned or at least played. We didn't want to kind of, so people will be going, oh, Innovation and the Dreamcast, where's Seaman? Well, I've never played Seaman, I've never owned Seaman, so I couldn't come on here and, and bluff my way through, you know, talking about it. Um, wouldn't be fair on you listening. So, um, we, we did stick to games that we've played. Or owned. Um, so, my, my four in no particular order. Um, his first one's Crazy Taxi. Um, yeah, I, was, just, I, was, I was expecting that to be on the list. Yes, the, the Dreamcast <laughs> game that I probably still play the most. Yeah. <laughs> um, an absolute addiction to this game. You have got to beat your high score. It's just, and it's one of those games that at home, you didn't have the luxury in the arcade to do it, but like you, you find yourself restarting after two or three customers because you know you're not going to beat your score. You know you've, <laughs> you know you've messed it up already. Yeah. Um, that is going to be a crap run. I'm just going to start again. Um, just madcap, a, a very basic premise turned on its head. Taxi driver, different coloured customers basically indicate their distance. You know, red's a very short distance one, amber, a little bit longer, yellow, burnt, kind of yellowy colour, green. Mm. You know, you know yourself, you go through the different kind of colours of, it's a, it's a higher fare, a higher distance. Um, and for me, the, the kind of thing with Crazy Taxi is that it's based on the premise of going in laps. And I, I think yeah. a lot of people don't get that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> now, you can have success playing it and just going about like a nutcase and going here, there and everywhere, but... The, the, the kind of way that, that I play it, um, and I'm not saying the way I play it is correct by any means. People have got their own way of doing it, but you kind of you start off, kind of go down the kind of the two hills, the kind of small shopping area, Pizza Hut, Tower Records, all these places, feel a store, kind of rummage about there for a bit, um, and then you're looking for a guy uh, to get to the church. So you get to the church, then you need to try and get one of the wee guys outside the church to go to the heliport. Then after the heliport, you want to go to the baseball stadium, and there's a wee granny who stands there, and nine times out of ten, she always goes to the police station, so that's you on the freeway all the way through. Um, and there's a kind of a wee trick to, to speed up on that, that freeway. See if you kind of ram your taxi into the right-hand side of the road and do limit cuts. <laughs> it actually almost grinds, and you pick up some absolutely stupid speeds <laughs> and you fly <laughs> along that freeway at eight knots um, <clears throat> excuse me and then basically you're looking to try and kind of move around the kind of the built up city area you want to go bus terminal fire station and then if you stop at the fire station across the road to your left hand side there's a wee man standing there with a bunch of roses and he's in a brown suit and he's the guy that goes to the university and the university is basically the start point for the game, yeah. so that's your lap and I just think they've managed to basically get a racing game that's got laps and turn it into a taxi simulator <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I've played it very much the same way, uh, uh, when, 
that that's your uh, that's your fare structure, isn't it? Yep. Once you uh, the the way to get around the the, the map the most efficiently. Um, yeah, it was that that you go around in laps, but oh, it was uh, a crazy, uh, literally crazy game because um, again, well, I don't think we'd ever seen anything open world quite like that. Maybe Driver on the PS One uh, had a little bit of an open world, but not quite to the scale of uh, Crazy Taxi, uh, and that just did it to a whole another level. Um, it's a game that Sega were so proud of that they tried to trademark the uh, the whole uh, indicator uh, mechanism, wasn't it? Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, it's, it's, like you, James, I, I, that's the per- it's the perfect game to just uh, just put on um, when you've got a few f- spare five minutes. And yeah, when, if you know you've messed up those first, um, if you're going down that hill and you you prang into another car and you lose your uh, you lose your combo then right that's it hold all four buttons hit start let's try this again um i mean but the thing that always stood out to me is how quick that game loaded as well and how quick you could get started again yeah and uh, it was it's mad because i remember seeing it in the arcade um and then literally a couple of months later it was on the dreamcast it's like wow and it was arcade perfect obviously um it was just revolutionary in many ways. So yeah, great shout on that one. It's again, it's just a, a, an absolute blast to play. It's yeah. just you know, it's again, it's a, a game you find five ten minutes, and I, I find you'll be the same as well to an extent. I would imagine because both get kids that your kind of gaming time can vary, and it's very much at a premium. So yep. you know, Sega games in particular are absolutely brilliant if you've only got maybe like a wee half hour. 15, 20 minutes, you want, Crazy Taxi is a perfect, perfect game for that, that kind of format. You know, you don't need to commit to anything, don't need to get to the next waypoint, don't need to do this side mission, don't need to unlock this, save that, buy this, grind for that. It's just, put it on, and sit back, disengage the brain, you know, drift, reverse, accelerate, brake, and yep. limit cut to your heart's content. Yep, it's, it's, there's so many, the controls are so deceptively simple, but we're so, we're so deep as well. The, the crazy drift, the crazy stop, the crazy boost. Uh, I didn't know that about the, uh, the way to cut through the, um, the, the, the freeway so quickly though. I still always ground between, uh, like the two lorries and you'd end up in your, your combo meter going through the absolute roof. Yep. <laughs> you you kind of, you sacrifice that, but you do kind of still pick up some. Because um, you're going by them kind of tight to the right hand side, that yeah. wee kind of the wee grey wall. Um, it kind of reminds me of the way um, Takumi in Initial D would take corners by putting mm-hmm. his wheel into the kind of the gutter. Yeah. It's that kind of idea. You just basically <laughs> plant your car in it, and you just need to sit and do limit cuts. Um, and you, the speed you can pick up is insane. Yeah, absolutely <laughs> insane. You, you'll actually just go boom, straight across the the freeway, and that's you. And you stop at the police station, and that's you into the the city in a way. But um, other honourable mentions, I'm kind of taking a cue from um, your use of treasure. Um, and you probably know where I'm going with this one um, is Ikaruga. Oh God, yes. <laughs> and again, a, a, a shmup which is ridiculously deep in its mechanics, yet so deceptively simple. Yeah. Um, if you've not played it, I'm sure you have all played it. Um, you've got white enemies and black enemies. They fire corresponding coloured bullets, and your ship has a white side and a black side. And whatever side your ship has, you know, turned up the way, you can absorb one set of bullets. So if you've got the white side, you can absorb the white bullets, and black side, you absorb the black bullets. Um, 
but it gets to the stage where you've got two sets of colours of bullets going across at any one time and you find yourself trying to shoot, dodge and flip the, <laughs> the, the ship <laughs> round to the colours to absorb one set before you can unleash the other ones and the other kind of weird caveat as well is that the white ship does more damage to the black enemies and the black ship does more damage to the white enemies Yeah. so you've got all that to consider and it looks glorious yeah, it, it really does. Um, I've never owned it, but I do have a CDR that I had from when it when it was around. Um, I think it's a CDR that somehow lasted twenty years. Uh, <laughs> I have since bought it both on Steam and on and on Xbox Live, uh, but it's still the Dreamcast is my favourite way to play it. It's uh, funny because Radiant Silver Guns probably my favourite shmup of all time. Yeah, obviously Sega Saturn bias there reads reads its head again. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you go from one to the other. Um, and Sega, Radiant Silver Guns, you know, you've got seven weapons and it's this huge, expansive game uh, with multiple sc- scoring systems. And you go down to Karuga, which kind of strips back all that um, high level complexity and makes it simple on the surface. But then it's exactly as you say, that you, scr- you scratch that surface lightly and it's so deep. Although, and you really have to, to think. Unlike Radiant Silver Gun, I've never managed to, to beat a Karuga uh, all the way through um, on any system, despite many, many attempts. Um, but it's, uh, it's, again, it's, I don't think there's any shmups out there quite like it. Um, obviously, it's, it's a bullet hell game, but the whole, the whole polarity thing, uh, yeah, quite unlike anything else out there, isn't it? Very, very clever. Um, okay. Next honourable mention, um, Space Channel 5. Um, This gets kind of unfairly by some people called a Parappa the Rapper (laughs) ripoff. I'm like, what in the name of hell are you talking about? The only thing it's got in common with Parappa the Rapper is that you basically try and move body parts in time to music. But again, the premise of this is just... Sega personified ooh la la the radio or TV reporter who's basically reporting live on an alien invasion and she's got to save the humans by dancing and shooting her way to success and building up uh, ratings and viewers and it's got the most insanely catchy soundtrack ever (laughs) it's like something out of Austin Powers <laughs> is the best. Honestly, it just if you've played it, and many people will have played it, you'll you'll know you'll know what I'm talking about. It just that whole main theme is just it's like seven my seventy show Austin Powers themed, catchy, you know, just a, a really daft fun game to play with. It's just another no brainer. It's the only thing I can think to say about Space Channel 5. It's not, again, like most of these games, where, where does it fall in terms of genre? A- alien dancing shooting simulator? I mean, <laughs> where, where do you put it? Yeah. Rhythm, um, rhythm game? Um, I suppose it is a, it's a rhythm game, uh, probably at third, but it, there's so much more to it than that. Yeah. I think putting a pigeonhole in it in the rhythm game bracket just does it a disservice. I've, yeah, the soundtrack really is... Uh, special. Um, it's a game that I've actually never played. I've only ever seen videos of it, um, and I'm always 
trying to get a, a copy of it. I think the uh, I was only obviously recently trying to get a Japanese copy, um, but I'd love to own it. Uh, it just looks like uh, such a blast. Um, I've, <laughs> I can't believe people call it a parappa or rapper. Parappa or rapper rap off me. Oh no. No. <laughs> I mean, there's so, there's so many games that are, you know, rhythm games. Um, so there was games before and after Parappa, Parappa, so it's madness to call it that. Um, but yeah, there's there's definitely something special and unique about about Space Channel Five and the whole way that it presents itself. Uh, I just need to play it. But uh, is it the first one or the second one that has Michael Jackson in it? Second one, I. Eh? The second one. Yeah, uh, which didn't come out over here. No. No, it was uh, Japan only, wasn't it? We didn't get part two. No. Yeah, so that, that's a that's a great shame. But I do need to uh, I do need to get my hands on one or one or both of them. Well, if you want the PAL copy, I think CEX have got it for eighteen quid because that's where I get my copy. Oh, really? Eighteen? It's, it's not it's not expensive. It's I mean again, I thought it'd be one of those games that might just because of the canal. Not so much rareness, but because it's kind of quite niche, I thought they might have bumped it up, but that's no, quite respectable priced. Uh, well, I think I might be going to take him a trip to uh, the CEX website then after once we're done and busted on yes, it. Yes, and they are still taking online orders, mate, so they are. there you go. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Okay. Not not trying to plug CEX by the way, they're a pain in the ass, <laughs> but just I've had good experiences with them buying Dreamcast games, which I'm quite shocked at because it seems to be when I buy a game for CEX, it arrives intact and in very good nick. And if I buy a game on eBay, it comes with a case smashed. Yeah, they're, they're not the most uh, robust of things, are they? The Dreamcast cases, and you know, I've kind of got to echo what you said. We've had pretty good experience with them in the past, so yeah, um, for Dreamcast stuff, they're okay. Mm. So my final game is Virtua Fighter 3 Team Battle. And it's just because I want to get Virtua Fighter 3 in there. Because um, launch game, you know, people questioned, could the Dreamcast do Model 3? And I know it's not arcade perfect, right? It lacks the kind of the texture complexity of, of Model 3. But if you set footage of both either, you know, both versions side by side, you really need to look to, to spot it, it's a damn good port, um, it took Virtua Fighter to another level, introduced the dodge button, you know, you had more kind of elevated stages, which you know, totally changed the gameplay, if you look at like, um, AO stage or Cage, you know, those had you know, hills and little kind of like, different variations in the depth and, and the, the kind of the height of the, the stages, you could I mean, if you're Akira, for example um, on Cage stage, if you're at the top of the hill you had a massive advantage with the power that Akira had doing his shoulder dash, doing his punch, double kick, going down that hill. Um, I just think it added a whole new layer to Virtua Fighter's gameplay. Um, for me, it's the best Virtua Fighter game. Um, four and, and, and five just didn't do it for me at all. Um, two was fantastic on the Saturn. No right doing that game at all. The, the port that the Saturn got of VF2 is absolutely sensational. Um, but VF3, I think just to, to bring it up a notch, it was almost arcade perfect. Um, the Saturn version, if you sat it beside the arcade, it was quite noticeable that it didn't have the same kind of polygon build-up and the characters and the stages were a wee bit more kind of mixture of 3D and 2D compared to the, you know, you, you lost Shundi's bridge yeah. in VF2 and the Saturn, for example, but, um, you know, 
VF3 was just, and again, it was a game I got with my Japanese Saturn, so again, possibly some rose-tinted specs there, but um, <laughs> I just think the gameplay elements that it brought, the way it took the series to the next level, the fact that it brought a Model 3 game into the home um, in a, a very, very playable form, um, I just think it deserves to be on that list, and that is my honourable mentions. Yeah, I mean, just on Virtual Fighter 3, I think it's uh, it was developed by Genki, I believe. That's right, uh, yep. Yeah, and it was done. Uh, it was rushed. It was uh, off the market. Um, the fact that they could get the Model Three, uh, get a game that was running a Model Three, performing so well in such a short time, uh, I think that speaks volumes about how powerful the Dreamcast was. Um, because I mean, let's not forget that the Dreamcast was a two hundred pound um, console, <laughs> Model Three uh, arcade board. Uh, I think that was uh, what we were talking about at least fifteen thousand pounds. So, <laughs> because uh, uh, the the gulf in power there was it should have been much more. But the the fact that the Dreamcast could pull that port off, even with uh, some shortcomings, um, see, I think the Virtual Fighter Two uh, was pretty much perfect as far as two, as three D fighting games were concerned. Mm. And I think the the big question was, you know, how do you how do you innovate more from here? And I think that's what Virtual Fighter 3 answered so well with the undulating stages uh, and the dodge button. Um, they may not have been everyone's cup of tea. I think uh, I think Virtual Fighter 3 uh, is overlooked uh, quite unfairly, uh, but it did so much to try and move the genre forward uh, compared to everything else that was around it at the time, and uh, unfairly overlooked, although understandably, given the uh, the other game on your list, that the Soul Calibur, which was also available in the uh, the Western launch. Yep. So, um, again, fantastic shout there. Okay, so that's us. So we hope you've enjoyed this trip down memory lane. Five Saturn games, plus some honourable mentions. Five Dreamcast games, plus some honourable mentions. Which do you think was the most innovative Sega console and Sega games? Which console do you guys think represented Sega at its absolute innovative best? You can get us on Twitter at Sega Guys. Um, the podcast is available on Podbean. It is going on to iTunes, so you'll be able to get it on there very shortly. Um, on behalf of myself and Dan, thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you all in the next one. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Look at the fun. Could you stop playing with that radio, Lord? I'm trying to get to sleep.